This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. Today we have another panel from Fast Company's Innovation Festival this past fall in New York City. This panel features Marty Walsh, the former Secretary of Labor for the U.S. Department of Labor. Secretary Walsh speaks about the Great Resignation, hybrid work, union drives, work, and the workplaces of tomorrow. Enjoy! everyone for joining us today, and uh, thank you, Secretary Walsh, for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we're delighted. Um, you know, I know you've been thinking a lot about the future of work, and so I thought we might start with a just perhaps deceptively simple question, uh, which is, what is, in your view, a good job? Circa 2022 in the United States of America, what's you a know, good job? I think what we've seen in the country over the last couple of years during the pandemic and while we're in this phase right now, uh, people quitting, looking for better paying jobs, looking for opportunity, looking for more opportunity for whether it's collective bargaining or better, better benefits. Uh, so I think what a good job is something that allows the opportunity to get into middle class, uh, that provides good benefits, uh, that provides, you know, I, I would love to see more pensions, but, you know, they, they seem to be, you know, not a thing in the past, but they're less, fewer and fewer. A good 401k plan, uh, good opportunity for growth within the company. I think, you know, depending on, on your age and what your background is, I think a good first job for people, meaning come out of college, would be all of those things and having an opportunity to do well. Do you think employers are creating enough good jobs? I think employers, I mean, I'm sure there's some employers in the room here today. Uh, I think employers are starting to really think about what is the future of the workplace and, and by that way, how do we recruit good talent and how do we retain good talent? Uh, you know, I'm 55 years old, so I've watched the millennium age kind of uh, grow up, and I watched a lot of people kind of get a job for a couple of years, move to another job, move to another job. And I think what we're going to see in the future is more people staying at companies if companies figure it out, and, and kind of like the old days when they talk about, you know, my grandparents and father worked for a company and mother for the whole, whole career. I think we're going to start seeing that moving forward. If companies sort of step up and, and give people an opportunity to grow and get the training yeah, they need to kind I mean, of address. I've, I've talked to com some companies in the country, and, and some companies are being really, really innovative, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're really focused on retaining talent, mm -hmm. uh, and they're also focused on recruiting talent. And, and I think that you know some of them offer paid family leave, and that makes such a big deal where a state or a city might not offer that. Uh, some offer uh, flexibility in doing work-life balance, being able to come in the office three or four days a week and, and work from home, particularly mothers that, that might not have childcare, strong, adequate childcare. So I think a lot of companies are being a little more sensitive to that now because they've gone through, you think about this, for the last three years what companies have gone through, they've gone through uh, in-person, in the office, uh, creating maker space and creating all kinds of ways of getting young people attracted to the company. Pandemic happens, everyone works from home now, everyone's in front of a computer, and really what they're thinking about is how do we not only keep our people, but there's so many opportunities out there for other people to, to jump at. It does seem like the retention piece is really important. I mean, there's so many buzzwords that we've coined over the last year or so. We have the great resignation, the great renegotiation, quiet quitting. It seems like there is, um, you know, despite maybe employers like trying to sort of navigate these new waters, like a sense that people are sort of dissatisfied, you know, even before, you know, any sort of inflation related issues, like there was sort of this underlying maybe sort of discontent. Um, and it must, it seems like it's something that will be challenging for employers to sort of figure out. It is, but I think it also levels the playing field for smaller employers that are going for that same talent. You know, generally people would say, oh, I want to go work at this big company here because they have all the, all the bells and whistles. 
And, and if, if they have an opportunity to go work for a smaller startup or a company that's kind of brand new, uh, they can be as competitive as recruiting talent as the big guys, especially with, with, the, with the internet and, and with all the, the apps that are out there. So, so you're in global competition, literally global competition for employees, but it's, it's put the power back in the hands of employees to be able to use that to be able to, to put themselves in a better position. Yeah, it does feel like uh, employees are sort of asserting their power in lots of different ways right now. Yeah. And they should. I mean, they should. You know, I think, listen, I, I, I believe in, I am a strong believer in companies need to do well and be successful and, and make money and all of that. But I also am a strong believer in treat your employees correctly and with respect because they're part of making your company so great. And I think that it's able, you're able to share, if you're able to share the profits and the success with your employees, you, you won't be having these challenges that people have not say trying to recruit talent. I'm curious, like in your own background, like when was the first time where you felt like, like this is a good job, like I have a good job? Yeah. So my first job ever was uh, I worked at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, and, maybe and, not. Maybe and, not that one. That wasn't my. That was a good <laughs> job because I got my first paycheck, and I thought it was pretty awesome. Uh, but the first time I, I really got a job that I would, I felt really fulfilled in. When I was in high school, I went to work for a stationery store in the back bay, and I was a delivery person for that store. Uh, and then uh, I did it. I don't know for maybe a year, whatever it was. And then they asked me to come in the office. And then I felt like I was part of a team. I was a younger kid, I was in high school. Uh, I was you know, with the managers, they let me run the cash register, they let me do some ordering, and, and I learned the products. And, and I, I did love the industry, believe it or not. A lot of people say, how do you love envelopes and pens? But I did. Uh, but, but, um, but I felt like it was the first time I was part of a team. And, and, it, was really, and, and it was the first time I really felt like it wasn't, I wasn't in Dunkin' Donuts, I wasn't sweeping the street, I wasn't doing that. I was actually doing something different. And so that, that was some, a job I, I really loved growing up. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that would sort of set you on a path to thinking about you know, what you're capable of in a different way if someone has sort of taken the time to invest in you. Yeah, and I also, you know, when I was living there, I always had a, ch I had a chance too to go in offices. And you know, I grew up, my parents from Ireland, my father was a construction worker, my mother uh, was basically stayed at home when we were kids, and, and uh, you know, she, she did domestic work around the city in different places. And it was the first time like, I was exposed every day to seeing what an office was. So I was in all the big buildings in town, I'd get a chance to go in the office and see what's going on there. And, and I think in, in the back of my head, I planted a seed that I wanted to be something like this, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was. Mm. And it gave me that opportunity to kind of open up my, my horizons a little bit from, from being, um, you know, growing up in, in the house I grew up in. Uh, because it, construction was my dad's business and, yeah. and my mother was a homemaker. Yeah. You know, that, that exposure at a young age can make such a, a difference. Um, I've actually brought um, uh, you know, kids from, uh, from you know, New York City public schools into the fast company offices to sort of see what we do. Yeah. And uh, you see it really makes a difference. And that's so important because when that happens, when that happens, kids get exposed to new things. When I, when I was the mayor of Boston, uh, Vertec Pharmaceutical was in Boston and they had internships for college kids. Mm -hmm. and, and I convinced, we had this great summer job program, so I convinced them one year to let the, some, let the, let the high school kids come in and, and experience the, the job. And the CEO, Jeff Lydon, told me one of the best things he ever did was bring in the high school kids because they're exposed to science, they're exposed to STEM, uh, they're exposed to actually not just learning about in the classroom, but how it actually works in a laboratory. Yeah. And, and he said that he just thought it was such a great opportunity. And, and too many kids in the inner city or in rural America don't get those, those, those exposures today. And really create, opening your door. I mean, if kids from New York were in this room right now, they'd have a chance to kind of see what's going on, have a chance to talk to you. We need to do more of that in this country because we really need that workforce of the future, and that's where it is. Do you think about, you know, when you think about then, you know, the 
kids who are just graduating from college, let's say, and entering the workforce, um, it seems like you know there's this sort of challenge with remote work, hybrid work. You know, are those folks going to be able to get that first experience where they have a mentor and make connections in in the workplace? Um, you know, when you think about this sort of future of work, is do you see that as a problem we need to solve? I, I you know, I think that. We're going to have hybrid. I think in a lot of business, going to be hybrid. And I'll be honest with you, I've come full circle. So when I was, uh, when the pandemic was going on, we, you know, emptied out City Hall. We just kept the mayor's office. And my intention was always to bring everyone back to work. Everyone has to come back to work. We have to go back to our shifts. We have to go back to our our community, our, our offices in the building. I became the secretary of labor uh, at the first beginning of that. I'm like, we need to bring people back in the building. And then as I went around the country and talked to different businesses and talked to people. I understood that there, there really is an opportunity here for us to, to kind of reimagine what the workplace looks like. I think that, I think that it, in my opinion, it would be a shame if it was all hybrid, if it was all telework, because young people lose that connectivity. They lose that ability for mentorship, for, for learning, asking those questions that you wouldn't ask on a Zoom. Uh, but I do think there's an opportunity here for, for companies to really think about uh, the flexibility, you know, the gig economy thinks they own flexibility. They didn't create flexibility. Flexibility started with companies, and now we have a real opportunity to think about what flexibility is. Uh, I've spoken to some of the biggest businesses here in New York City in particular, uh, and most of them have said to me, uh, this hybrid model is amazing, because what they're seeing is their employees are happier, mm. they're actually getting, getting more productivity, uh, and they're able to give somebody a break if they need a break, if they have a sick parent or a sick kid or, or whatever it is, they give them a break. And I think that that will be the future of work. It's interesting, yeah, it seems like you're focusing on hybrid as opposed to you know, remote, fully remote. Um, I think you could argue that remote work in some ways is a failed experiment. Um, you know, we haven't seen productivity gains exactly over the last few years in the US. Um, you know, people are calling employees back to the office. Um, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, seeing that, um, yeah, remote work has not necessarily delivered the economic gains, I guess, that some. But I would look at the other side of that. I yeah. think where remote work can be helpful is if you, if you have an area in, in the country where you don't have good, strong public transportation, mm -hmm. uh, if you have a, an area of this country, maybe in parts of rural America, that you, that you don't have good transportation and you can't drive all the way into the city to go to work, I think if there's an ability to be able to do predominantly remote work from your home, um, that can work. But it, I think it's specifically around certain, certain, certain you know, tasks or, or certain jobs in a company. Uh, but I do think that, you know, you know, listen, I was in New York uh, about, I told you this backstage, I think, about six months ago, and there was no one in the city. Yeah. Uh, I was here about two weeks ago, and it was like booming again, and it's great to see people in and, in and around, and, and what that does do, it also supports the ecosystem, it, helps, it supports the restaurants and the, and the bars and, 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 the, and the shops, and the retail shops, and so you, you need to have people out, and I think part of people come out is because of work. Yeah, no, that's very true. Like, do you think the administration should be thinking about ways to sort of, you know, there certainly have been, you know, rural areas and small towns that have you know, offered up incentives to convince people to move and sort of try to revitalize those economies. You know, is that something the administration would like to see more of and want to incentivize in some way? See, I think the administration, when it comes to work, I don't think we should be telling businesses what to do and we should be telling people what to do. We, we should be laying down the foundation, and I'll get into in a second what, what I can do and Gina Armando, the Secretary of Commerce, yeah. but I think we should, we should not be telling business how to run the business. I think what we should be doing is giving businesses support. What do I mean by that? Number 
number one in the Department of Labor, we're responsible for money going into job training, workforce development, apprenticeships. We should be working hand in hand with companies, asking them what they need out of, for their employees, and we should be working with workforce development boards and mayors around the country to make sure that the investments by any federal government or state government or city is going to help uh, create an opportunity for more people to get into employment. I, I've always felt that way. I, I just don't think, like, I mean, I can't stand on a stage and say, okay, you're a business, you should be doing this, you should be doing four days, four days in person, one day remote, and this is what it should be. That's not our role. Our role is to support business and support workers any way we can to make sure our economy is strong and flourishing. And, and so I guess my question would be then, you know, as you're sort of thinking about like workforce development, like how do you sort of think about, you know, I feel like we had this moment, I don't know, maybe like five or 10 years ago when all the rage was, you know, coding boot camps and, you know, like yeah. what, what does that look like today? It feels like that moment has, that moment has sort of passed. I'm not sure if it had the sustained impact some people thought it might have. Um, when you are saying workforce development or training, like what does that mean to you? Yeah, so when I was, um, so I've had a couple different roles in government. I was a state representative in Massachusetts. I was the mayor of Boston, a state rep for 16 years, mayor of Boston for seven, and then now secretary of labor. And I remember supporting workforce development programs as a, as a rep, and I'd go to the job training centers, and no disrespect, this is not meant to be a slight at those centers, but I'd go in and I'd see people working, learning how to code a computer. And they might be 55 years old, and I'd, I'd think to myself, how, I, how many of these people are actually gonna go work in this industry? And when I became the mayor of Boston, we really created workforce development to really kind of meet the people where they're at and get them prepared in, into skills for, for, for jobs of, of what's happening now in the future. Um, you know, we had a building in Boston, the Bowling Building, it's a, it's a, it's a it's our, our headquarters for our school department. And we had some extra space on there and I thought it would be cool if we had an innovative lab in there so people in the community could go into the innovative lab and learn what it is. We had Mass Challenge in Massachusetts. We have we, all these spaces in Massachusetts for people to go in and do. But what we didn't have is kids of color learning, learning coding and learning as a young age. So we, we tried to change that a little bit in the city. Actually, a lot in the city. I, I came here to the Department of Labor and what I said to my team was, we can't do the same old thing because we have so many, depending on where you are in, 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 the, in the world. I mean, if you're, here in, if you're here in New York City, I'm assuming tech is big. We need to be training young people in tech. We need to be doing investments in tech. When you think about the Rust Belt in Ohio, uh, Intel's making a $20 billion investment in creating a chip manufacturing. We need to get the folks there, not just building the construction jobs or building the chip manufacturing, but actually creating the chips. So we need to do targeted investments in different places. And we have to partner with businesses. I mean, again, it's like I could put a job training program together, but if I'm, if I'm, if I'm skilling people up and they graduate the program, there's nothing for them at the end. And I just think it's so key to have businesses at the table. So if somebody go, what I would like to see, somebody goes through a job training program, a workforce development program, a community college, or whatever it is, when they get through that program, at the end of that time, they have a job. Mm -hmm. or they have an opportunity for a job. That's good job training. And I think we have to use better data to make sure that we're connecting people to those jobs. Yeah, yeah, that it's not just sort of um, sending them out in, into the world without a sort of clear Because they don't pathway. know where to go. Yeah. I mean, they don't know where to go. Uh, one of the other things you did when you were mayor of Boston uh, that I wanted to touch on was you were able to pass, I think, uh, paid leave, uh, which has obviously been something that um, the Congress has sort of struggled to, yeah. to move on many times. Um, something as a working mom that's very important to me. And I'm curious, like, you know, how did you get that done? Well, I, I did an executive order and then the city council passed it. But again, this is one of those issues that, like, when I say not all, but some businesses are like, we can't have that. Just think about it for a minute, paid family leave. Think about if you look at any company in the United States that offers paid family leave, 
you see, uh, you see a, a decline in, in sick time. You see happier employees. If you look at Europe where they have, you know, they go on vacation for six weeks at a time, God forbid we do that in America, we'd have a heart attack. Um, but, but you think about, you have a, and the productivity is the same. Mm-hmm. And what paid family leave does, it, 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 it tells your employees that you respect them. And, and again, it's, it's not about abuse. And, and even when Congress was debating it uh, this year, I mean, I had some conversations with some, some, some of my, um, some of the call, some, um, my, fr- my friends in the Senate that, that were kind of on the fence on this. I'm like, you gotta look at the story of that. You know, I've had a chance to talk to companies in America very early in my tenure as secretary and asked about paid family leave. And, and what they said was, it's an amazing recruitment tool Mm-hmm. That if you're, if you're a single person or you're a mother or a father and you're going into a company and you have two opportunities on the table and one has a little more money but one is paid family leave, more often than not, you're going to pick the paid family leave one because you're realizing my kids might get sick, my husband might get sick, my wife might get sick, my mother might get sick. There's an opportunity there. So I, I actually think that, you know, I know that I hope that we will someday have it as law of the land. But I think if you're a company in America and, and, and you're not doing it, you're putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage. Did you get pushback from any like small businesses, let's say, in Boston around the? No, policy? no, nobody did. I mean, you know, we fought for the fifteen dollar minimum wage. There was a lot of pushback saying it's going to put businesses out of business. Mm-hmm. And once the fifteen dollar now, it's I think we're, we're one step away from fifteen. I think we're at fourteen something now. And, and you know, it's going to it's going to hurt business. It's going to go down the drain, and we're going to have to close doors. Actually, what it did it enhanced business, made more business happen, and it completely had the opposite effect on it. And then with pay family leave, I, I mean, I wasn't there long enough to see the, the results of it yet. But I think it's going to have the same impact, that you're going to be able to recruit people and retain people with that. With things like you know, paid leave, yeah, you, know, you have some companies, like let's say the Googles of the world, you know, offering benefits like that. I mean, Google even offers, I think, fertility benefits and support like that, offering flexibility, remote work. You, know, you have this sort of class of folks who are you know, the tech workers who can uh, you know, go do their midday hike and then hop on a Zoom call. And then you have a class of people who, you know, let's say daycare workers who are, need to be in person for set hours changing diapers. Yeah. Um, it feels like there's sort of this haves and haves not dynamic. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, does that concern you? And do you see sort of a path forward on that? Yeah, th- that's one area. I mean, when you think about what's going on in childcare in America, um, before the pandemic, we had a, a major issue with childcare. We had workers that were taking care of our kids that were underpaid, um, you know, and, and you had organizations that ran these childcare facilities, businesses that weren't able to keep talent. And what happened was a young person would go and want, want to have a career in that field, uh, but they'd, they'd leave and they'd most likely go into teaching. Um, we really have to think about the way that we, 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 we fund childcare and the president has a bill uh, that would, would make some federal investments in child care and cap it that no, no family who earns under $150,000 would pay more than 7% of their child care. Uh, so I think we have to come up with a better system there because we have to respect the teachers and the staff that work in child care. It's no different than grocery store workers. I mean, two years ago, we were all talking about how great grocery store workers, how essential they are, and we love them. Yeah. And we really haven't heard much about grocery store workers since then. But the grocery store workers in Puerto Rico were working yesterday when there was a hurricane. And the grocery store workers are always essential employees. And they're always working through, through very difficult times. And I think we have to think, I don't know how, I don't have an answer to this yet. How do we treat them and, and treat them better? But we definitely have to treat our, uh, our people that are paid less, that have a very important job in our country, more money. Farmers in America, farmers get paid nothing. Yeah. Uh, which is which is horrible. And, and if it weren't for the farmers, all the food that's in this place today that we're all going to eat, they, they picked it. They're out in the they're out in the community picking out, out of the out of the fields. 
and we, we, don't, we don't respect them enough. That's why I think that all these other little benefits, paid family leave and other things can be helpful in a way to, to help retain. Striking, uh, I think there isn't it more than half of uh, folks who work on farms have an off-farm job now. Like you basically can't support yourself with your farm anymore. You have no, to be working elsewhere as well. It's, it's hard, and, and teaching too. I mean, I, I, you know, teachers. I mean, you know, I come from Boston, so the teachers get paid well, and they get paid well in New York City. But around the country, teachers average forty thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. and, and what we do, we get caught up in the picket line on TV, seeing the teachers picket at some some capital somewhere. I can't believe they're picketing. Meanwhile, they are, they're educating the future of America. Mm -hmm. And we need, to be we need to be respecting our teachers in a way that they're, they're earning good wages when you think about it. I mean, because if, 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 if a teacher gets it wrong, then that child will, 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 not, will, will, will be impacted by that. And that child then won't be able to go work for some of the companies in this room and in the city and in this country. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Just like the younger generation in some ways has sort of internalized this idea that, you know, to sort of get ahead, you almost like need, you know, you need your, your main job and then you need your side hustle. You know, people will teach online on the side or drive for Uber or do all these things and or, you know, resell goods online. And it feels like in some ways that's sort of celebrated and, you know, becomes a way to sort of live the lifestyle that you want to live, uh, particularly for, for younger folks. And I'm curious, like, you know, is that something we should be celebrating? Are those sort of, you know, entrepreneurial Americans or is that a sign that the job market is, is not working? Well, I, I think it's a sign of, of society as well. I mean, I think that, you know, when, when I was the mayor, my job was to try and retain people that came from other cities, other states to go to college in Boston, to stay in Boston after they graduated. And what we realized, you know, pre-pandemic, and it's happening right now, there was a big um, kind of migration, if you will, from the suburbs into the cities all across America. And we came up with a plan to create uh, 69,000 units of new housing by the year 2030. And part of the pressures on people that they need a second job is that the costs are just crazy. And the cost for apartments and housing is so high. And the way you fix that is by putting supply on the market. And so I think that you know we have to have a real serious conversation in America. The federal government doesn't really invest in housing. It doesn't in, in, you know, in federal housing, but we really don't invest in housing. I think we have to think about permitting as we move forward and also investment in housing. Because it, as we see people wanting to move into the city, cities, plural, um, you know, they're being priced out. You look around the country, I'm not going to put names because they'll, they'll be in the paper more, but there's lots of cities in America that, that are growing and being innovative. They want to attract talent and keep recruit talent. But one of their pressures is housing. That forces a young person who works for a company to pick up a second shift, whether it's you know w working in a bar or a restaurant, things like that, or picking up that second shift. It, yeah. The best scenario would be you, you, get a, you work one job, mm -hmm. you get a good wage, you have a good benefit, and you have an opportunity to raise your family in that one job. We shouldn't have people in this country having to work two and three jobs to get by. <laughs> Seems like you have some agreement on that in the audience. Um, uh, since you brought up uh, rising prices and high cost of living, uh, I thought we should maybe talk a little bit about uh, just the August uh, job and inflation reports. Um, you know, we have the job market. The job market was great. Yeah, maybe a little too great, right? It's kind of coming in it's hot. It's never too great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we have these, uh, I think, over 6% increase in inflation and yeah. core inflation on the rise if, if you take out uh, energy and, and food. Um, and so, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of economists say, you know, 
based on those reports, that likelihood of recession is greater than it would have been, you know, they would have said a couple of weeks ago. You know, where do you stand yeah, on this? You know, I'm not an economist, so let me stop by saying that. And, and I'm not necessarily sold on the fact that we are headed towards uh, an economy that's going to be collapsing. Um, you know, I want to back up two years um, before the pandemic. Uh, unemployment in this country was low. Uh, inflation was low. Um, we weren't having problems with supply chain. We didn't have a bully going into Ukraine and starting a war. Uh, we didn't have all of those things happening. So I think to put in context, and, and, and the, the economists out here that are watching today, uh, you know, everyone's trying to compare this to 2008, 2001, and it's just not the same. It's just not the same. You can't, it doesn't, nothing like this that we're going through right now compares to any other period economically in the history of our country. So President Biden gets elected, uh, puts forth the American Rescue Plan, 10 million Americans are out of work. Those folks, for the most part, have all returned back to the workforce. Um, we're seeing inflationary pressures because of, in some ways, lots of ways, because of supply chain issues. Whether we want to admit it or not, supply chain issues. Um, and, and I think that, you know, as we continue to move forward here, I like to see a good job market. Uh, and again, I'm not comparing it to the last economic, last economic cycles. I say it's too hot, it's going to drive inflation. I'm not necessarily sure on that. Yeah. Construction stocks haven't slowed down. Uh, I think uh, if I read the report today correctly, housing stocks are higher this month again. Mm -hmm. So we're not seeing that slowdown in construction. So I think, and the president is, is really focused on bringing down inflationary pressures. So how do you do that? I think you do it a couple of ways. Number one is you continue to move the supply chain through, which we're doing. Uh, number two, we release the reserves for, for oil and bring gas down. I think gas is still coming down for 12 straight weeks now. Obviously yeah. pressures we had and who knows what's gonna happen in the future. Um, and, and what we have to do is continue to, to bring down inflation. The Fed, which is completely separate than us, is raising interest rates. Uh, and people, you know, it, and just one other thing, just for the young people out here. When you, if you're buying a house, 3% interest rate on your home, buying a new home, is really not normal. Uh, when I bought my, my, my house in, I think, 1999, the first time I bought a house, I think my interest rate was 5.85%. And that was kind of normal interest rate back then. It just came down so low. So it'll come back some way down the road. But, 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 you know, so, but, but I, think, I think that the economic policies that President Biden's putting forth, passing the chips bills and other important it won't help inflation today but it will help inflation down the road so but we have to keep an eye on it i mean i'm not going to joke and say it's not serious it's very serious yeah i will say this you know we're, we're leveling off a bit here in inflation in the united states of america and if you're going to really be honest about it we have to look at the globe inflation inflation in europe is double digits yeah. You know, and, and so there's real inflationary pressures there, but we, we have to continue to bring inflation out because it is, it, is it is a problem for people. I mean, I'm not gonna kid you, it's a problem for all of us, um, but it's a problem for the average American person who's trying to put food for a family of four, uh, your costs have gone up at the, food, at the kitchen table and we need to bring those costs down. You know, there is, you know, one of the challenges, of course, with inflation is sort of inflation expectations and the way in which, you know, if there are these expectations that inflation will continue, um, you know, workers want higher pay to keep pace and then, you know, companies will raise their prices and you guys sort of end up with this um, reinforcement that continues the inflation. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, uh, yeah, you know, if I feel like I deserve a raise, and perhaps I do, I think my editors are in the room. Um, I think uh, you should get one. Yeah, so. yeah, well, thank you. All right, I think that's the ultimate endorsement. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I want my salary to keep pace with inflation. You know, am I part of the problem? You know, how do I... No, you want your salary actually to, 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 uh, to surpass inflation, and we want to bring inflationary pressures down so the money that you make, I think last year, year this year, year over year, 
uh, 5.6% increase in wages. It's the largest, I think, in 40 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. I might be wrong on that, so don't quote me on that number. Uh, but now we have inflation of you know eight and a half nine percent, which which takes away the gains you people have made. Um, I, I think that it, it, I think getting people to be paid more money is a good thing. Um, you know, again, I go back to the success of a company. Uh, I I don't I honestly, and I'm going to get in trouble saying this from my comms person. I don't care how much a CEO makes. I don't care how much the board makes. I just want you to treat your employees fair and get, make sure you share the profits and share the benefits with your employees. Mm -hmm. And I think that for too long that hasn't happened. And I think that right now, when you have competition for, 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 for talent, you have to pay your employees more. And I hope it's not a one and done type of thing where you do it for a year and the next year if it balances out, you're not gonna do it anymore. I think it really is important for, for American companies to understand how do we treat our employees to make sure that we keep our economy moving in, in a very positive manner. Does you know a fair treatment um, seem to be part of the sort of core of the issue that the rail workers were raising in those negotiations? Um, you know, do you still feel confident that the, those unions will sign off on on the deal? Yeah. So just so people know, it was in the paper this weekend. The, the rail unions were negotiating with companies for two, the last two two plus years for a contract. Um, they didn't get anywhere with the contract. No one could get to an agreement. Came to loggerheads. The president um, had, has powers in the Rail Railroad Act um, to create a presidential emergency board, which went out and listened to both sides and came back with a recommendation. So the president put forth a recommendation. Um, both sides, um, neither side was really happy with it, but not, not everyone disliked it either because there was a 24% wage increase in there. Yeah. Uh, and the unions and the companies went back to the table. There was a cooling off period. They went back to the table uh, to negotiate. And, and they were kind of stuck on you know, four or five issues. And some of it was language, some of it was days off, and, and some of it was who's capping healthcare. Uh, and what I did was I brought both sides into the room, um, and at the end of the day, I think as a labor, as a former labor leader, when the members get a chance to look at the whole package, uh, they'll understand that this is, this is a, a very good package for them. It shows respect. And then um, one of the companies, uh, which I'll leave nameless, you can look it up, was on one of the I think C, one of the NBCs or ABCs or CNNs, one of those folks. And he said, um, he said we need we have a job to do with building trust with our employees again. Mm -hmm. So again, it, it was partly about what the benefit looks like, and it was partly about respecting the, the employee. And I think that you know, in this particular case, I think at the end of the day. I do feel good. I mean, work has to be done. Uh, there's some stories written, if you read them, you know, the employees haven't seen the contract yet. No, they haven't, because they're putting the package together, and there's like a six-week period where the, where the union will send it out to, their employee, out to their members. They'll get a chance to look at it. They'll have town halls or, or, or different types of meetings. They'll be able to ask questions about the agreement, and then at some point in the course of the next, I think it's next six weeks to a month, two months, they vote on it and hopefully ratify it. I'm curious, like, yeah, certainly, you know, higher pay was a piece of, is a piece of that package. It does feel like a lot of the union drives and negotiations these days do sort of revolve around things other than pay, you know, working conditions, and um, I think about, like, you know, Amazon warehouse workers, yeah. you know, wanting to be able to actually sit down for once in a shift. Um, you know, I'm curious, like, why is that? Have working conditions gotten worse? Or? Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. So, so the president and the vice president convened a meeting at the White House with, uh, Starbucks organizes, Amazon organizes, uh, the Public Library of Baltimore organizes, REI, and um, I'm drawing a blank on the other two. And all the young people came in and they were talking about their organizing drives. They all had been successful in, in organizing their respected employer. And none of them talked about wages. 
They all talked about work conditions, the way they're being treated in the job, shifts. None of them talked about wages. And, and I was listening to them, and I've been around labor for a long time, and usually the first thing you say, I want more wages. And, and these workers were fundamentally looking for safer working conditions, better working conditions. So I do think this is a, a change in, 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 in culture and employees. And just for people, like when you think about the numbers of unionized workers in the country, it's not, it's not the majority. It's actually, I think, 10%. Yeah. 90% of the employees in the country that aren't unionized are thinking in the same way. So mm -hmm. don't think it's just the union employees that are thinking this way. It's the rest of employees or a good portion of them. So I think that, that that's why the earlier thing we talked about, I think it's important to have conversations, dialogue with your employees and respect your employees because they feel, if they don't feel wanted or, or needed, uh, they're gonna leave. Go, you know, the, the, I think it's millennials and then the next generation, they're not gonna stand for just going to a job every day and not being treated fairly. They, they're gonna say, well, I'm gonna go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, yeah, you know, do you think about then, you know, there, I think, yeah, 10% of folks are in a union today. Yeah. The year I was born, it was, I think, closer to 20%. Like, do you think we're headed in a direction that we would be trending back toward 20? Or like, yeah, yeah what's your... The year I was born, it was more than 20%. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I definitely, you know, listen, we're seeing a major increase in organizing in the United States of America, unlike I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, when you see poll numbers that say 70% of American workers are, are favoring, to, could, could potentially join a union, you're seeing a, a, lot of, a lot of interest in unions and collective bargaining and what it means um, our, our at the National Labor Relations Board, I want to say we're up almost 60% of applications for an election of a union than this time last year. Mm -hmm. Actually, let me go back to August, early August, it was up 60%. Uh, so there's a lot more interest in organizing and, and being part of a union. Uh, in saying that now, I think organized labor has an opportunity to change the way they operate too. Because I think that employers get afraid of unions with picket lines and strikes, and they think we get mad about that. And I think that the labor movement in the future is going to be look very different than it does today. If you get young workers and tech workers and, and Amazon workers and Starbucks workers and coffee shops and things like that, you're talking about a different type of, of member and different type of industry. And I think you know, I often said this to organized labor. You know, you, as companies adapt and change, mm -hmm. organized labor needs to adapt and change. You know, as you think about the, the, you know, companies and, you know, when you used to have the offices and the lot, cubicles up to the ceiling and then you get rid of the cubicles, you have open floor spaces and you have better collaboration, you have all that. Organized labor, and it, that's just, it's a physical thing, but organized labor needs to start thinking differently as well when they're, when they're, when they're out there working and organizing. What do you think are the opportunities if they do think differently? Like, what would that deliver? I think the, the, I think the participation of workers in America being covered by collective bargaining will, will get into the 20s and potentially 30s and 40s, depending on, on, on how that works. I mean, yeah. you know, what, what I try to do, when I ran for mayor, um, I, I ran, I was a head of the building trades, I was a state rep, and the businesses in Boston were petrified of me. <laughs> and and, and the, the papers wrote up Ed saying he'd be terrible for business, he'd be bad for business. The day I left mayor, they were disappointed I was leaving because I, you bring a collaborative approach to the business and you, have, you bring a respect to the business. And you have to make sure it's a mutual respect. It's interesting, like you have on the one hand, you know, folks organizing in greater numbers. On the other hand, you know, you have companies like Uber on the rise, you know, where, you know, they, I think, just paid a $100 million fine to the Labor Department of New Jersey uh, for misclassifying their drivers as independent contractors. And what I thought was interesting is that, you know, Uber kind of came back and said, well, you know, we'll pay this fine, but actually we disagree. Our drivers are independent contractors, and um, we actually are going to keep pushing for policy change because that's what our drivers want. They want 
want flexibility. They don't want to be considered employees. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, like how do you sort of, yeah, do you think that it's fair for Uber to make that point? Is that actually well, what the drivers want? I've got a few parking tickets in my life that I had to pay, and I didn't think it was fair to <laughs> parking tickets. I, I was not happy to. You know, I, I'm not as familiar. I, I mean, I know about the case in, in, in New Jersey and, and kind of, um, you know, I haven't gotten to, to dove into the details there. I know about the ballot question in California. Yeah. Uh, I've spent some, a fair amount of time talking to the ride sharing companies in, in here in the United States since I've been in this role, even when I was mayor. Uh, and also, we're talking to the employees. So, you know, that, that, there's still lots of ongoing conversations moving forward here. Listen, it, 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 the one thing I just made a, want to make a point in the very beginning, you know, a lot of times these, these ride-sharing companies, these companies claim that they created an event of flexibility. Mm-hmm. It was around long before they were around, and, and it'll be around long after they're around, uh, I think, when it comes to flexibility. I'm not saying they're leaving. I'm just saying when there's a new model. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, I think a lot of states are having real conversations. Massachusetts, there was a ballot question in Massachusetts mm-hmm. to, to, to similar to the California ballot question to, to kind of keep independent contracts separate um, and the judge threw it out so now they're kind of at square one again so I think you know and then you go to places in Europe where where they're recognized as employees in Europe uh, in, in Uber and Lyft in a lot of countries so I think that we're having those dialogues and conversations in America I think we have a lot of other conversations to have as well so uh, we'll see as we move forward how that conversation goes I guess and then on both that you have you know Uber drivers and then also you know folks like Amazon warehouse workers, you know, they don't really have a traditional boss anymore, right? Their boss yeah. is the, the tech. The Amazon like, workers yeah. need to be treated fairly in, in the warehouses. And, yeah. and um, you know, $25 an hour is not a lot of money. Yeah. I just want to be very clear on that. Particularly right now. You know, when people make statements like $25, $25 an hour is a lot of money, they should try and live on $25 an hour and see how, they feel, how, how that works out. Yeah. Uh, you know, for a, family, for a family of three or four, that, that, you can't raise a family on that. It's a good starting wage, and it's a good wage to kind of get on your feet. But, but I think that, you know, th- these, tech, these companies, um, you know, CEOs and, and all the other folks, they need to pay attention that the person that's making you the money that you have today Mm-hmm. is the person that's in the warehouse that, that quite honestly, in some of these cases, are putting their life at risk. And, and it's really unfair. So, I, you know, my father was a, was a laborer. He, you know, when you think of construction, he wasn't an electrician, a plumber. He was a laborer. And, and he was the guy that, you know, they, they cleaned the job site and they worked it, and they worked hard. In the very beginning, they weren't treated fairly, and they weren't treated respect. And I respect my dad every day for the work he did. He worked really hard. So when I hear somebody talk about warehouse workers, that $25 is too much, that, that, that's, that's complete nonsense. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Jeff Bezos makes uh, $25 in about a tenth of a second, yeah. so um, probably a lot less than that. And I'm, again, I'm not criticizing. You can make, yeah. They can make as much money as they want. Just, you know, you have this unbelievable business model that you control the, you know, during the pandemic. I saw more Amazon trucks than anything else, and they did okay. Uh, but, but just treat the workers with respect. That's all we're asking for. And if they want to organize, unionize, sit down and have a conversation with them. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, President Biden's been very clear on that. I'm very clear on that. You know, I'm, I, you know, just have a conversation because you clearly have an issue in a warehouse and a bunch of warehouses around the country or, or coffee shops that people want to organize. Well, why don't you talk to your employees and ask what the problem is? Yeah. Well, I think now they are. <laughs> so yeah. um, I guess we'll find out. Um, I know we're almost out of time, so I thought maybe we'd close. Um, you know, what would your advice be to someone who's entering the workforce today? Yeah, just, uh, I mean, 
listen, dream. Don't, don't settle for something you don't want to do. I mean, my, my honest advice is if you're a young person, you're getting in the workforce, you know, and you want to you want to get a career, go to a place that you can learn, go to a place that you might not be paid as much in, as you would be in another place, but go and learn because you're going to be in the workforce for a long time. And, and, and you know, and, and ask a lot of questions and get mentors and, and, and talk to people. I, you know, that's that's the best advice I can give you. Don't all, you don't have you don't have to be a millionaire the first year out of college. What you have to do when you first come out of college is lay down the foundation or, or if you come out of high school, lay down the foundation for a great, strong career. And you do that by by picking the right companies and, and talking to the right people. I think that's great advice. And we're exactly at time. See that? So yeah. Thank you.